This episode of Songwriter Stories is sponsored by Piano Wars. Piano Wars offers unique, high-energy entertainment featuring dueling pianos, sing-along, audience participation, and dance music. Find out more at pianowars.com. Since being signed to RCA Records in 1998, David Mead has been continuously reinventing his approach to writing, recording, releasing, and promoting pop music. After rejecting the trappings of celebrity, he became a fearless marketer, leveraging his loyal fan base and cultivating music relationships to jumpstart new and ambitious songwriting and recording projects. Sung in a voice that begs to be bathed in superlatives, songs from the David Mead catalog belong in every serious pop collection. Let me begin with a bedtime story Let me remind you what you came here for You can forget all the bygone glories I can't live up to them anymore I thought I would try something new I couldn't refuse this chance to redeem myself I know that it's been a long time Since these little rhymes were ringing your wedding bell But now I will Welcome to Songwriter Stories. 
Thank you, uh, Dave. I appreciate you having me. I'm happy to be here. I know a little bit about your story and how, how your music has come to be in the public awareness. So we're going to talk about that too, because it's very interesting. From your first contract to the way the most recent album was released, you've really been experimenting. That first song I heard from you was Indiana. Calling you up on a very small phone. I'm in the middle of nowhere, population of one. Indiana's the wrong place to be stuck in a car, but I'm the king of the highway. First thing that I felt about your music is that you have verses that grab your attention and very singable choruses, which is pretty much what a good song has to be. You have to have something that gets your attention and then holds it and goes somewhere, you know, that you want it to go and be singable. I said, this guy's a lyricist. And then the funny thing is, it just keeps getting better. Like the chorus hits and I'm like, oh my God. Come on, sugar, just say I love you. You're out riding those concrete canyons. You don't know what it means to miss you. I'm still driving through Indiana. It slays me, you know. I, I knew I loved what you were going to be doing. And I would find something great on every album that I would love. And that was just the key. What do you have to say for yourself? Well, I'm uh, sorry to have committed you to a, a lifetime of looking for a decent lyric on, on my albums because they're, they're not always that easy to find. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's, really, that, that's great to hear. I don't know if now's the right time to go into lyric writing or what. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just happy. I'm, I'm, I'm happy it did it for you. I'm happy that we're here and having this conversation, uh, you know, directly or indirectly because of that moment. Well, you, you know, there's a lot of road songs. There's a lot of road songs. Musicians sure. who travel write road songs. And there you go. The, pull, the pull of the road song is, is really, you know, huge. But this is the road song that sneaks up on you. It's quiet and it's, I'm in the no, middle of nowhere population of one. That's how it feels checking into those hotels. That's exactly what it is. And you don't find out about the trouble in the relationship until the end of the song. You know, you just think he's calling his baby, right? Yeah, uh, I think the, I think the, the road is, a, is like a popular point of mythology in music because as you pointed out, a lot of musicians, uh, you know, by nature of their employment are spending a ton of time on the road and the road is uh, the perfect dichotomy of it's, it's alluring and it's exciting and, you know, most people don't do it and therefore... Uh, you know, kind of harbor these um, assumptions that it's that it's you know amazing and great and free and and of course sometimes it is and I think a lot of people associate uh, a musician's uh, touring livelihood maybe with you know road trips or vacations or whatever that they took uh, at some point in their lives which hopefully were a positive experience and therefore you know they they think of um, a musician being in that scenario full-time you know like that's that's their life and um 
yeah, occasionally touring is like that. And then, uh, occasionally it's not. And, uh, you know, the other side of the, the road mythology is that the road destroys a lot of people's lives on, on, uh, different levels, whether it's the primary factor in contributing to a, the end of a relationship or the fact that, uh, the normal, what, what's normal for a musician on a road is not, uh, a lot of times not a particularly healthy lifestyle. And that's not even if you're, um, but it doesn't just apply, you know, if you're, if you're living hard and partying or whatever, it's just like really just honestly, in terms of being a human being, uh, just being on the road and constantly in motion is just not really that good for your head. Not at all. So, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an alluring topic, I think, for a lot of reasons, because there's, there's the reality of it. And there's, there's actually probably several realities of it wrapped up into that. And then there's the, uh, the dream of it. So I, I think it's, it's a fun thing to hear about. And to an extent, it's a fun thing to do. But, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to write different aspects of it. Things that are romantic are also heartbreaking in a way. And in this case, you've got the romance of the road, the pull of the road, the beauty of the road. But, you, but it's heartbreaking, too. And romance means exposing yourself to something very uh, tenuous and, you know, scary. And so does romance. So uh, all that plays into it. You know, you pull into a truck stop. And what do you say? Oh, it's a glamorous life. It's a glamorous life. Wonderful. Yeah, and in fact, that, that line was always funny because I, 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 the line is, I'm pulling off at a truck stop. And, um, you know, that, that in America, we just say, yeah, I'm pulling off the interstate right now. And, and that's, that's what you're doing. It's a pretty straight ahead statement. But in, uh, in the UK, pulling off is, is a completely different um, how shall we say that's a that's a completely different use of a phrase, which which oh, means uh, pleasuring oneself. Exactly. So it was always yeah, it was always like it was always fun to sing that line on UK tours. I, I'm pulling off at a truck stop, and you just sort of see these kind of people raise their eyebrows, like, "Wow, that's uh, he's very comfortable." Not quite what we were. That's not how we were expecting the, this song to wind up. He, he's he's given up, and he is now taking full advantage of a grimy bathroom at a, at so, a truck stop. Okay. Suffice it to say, you could never write the titles to movies in foreign countries. You know how they always have to change them so they don't sound wrong? Uh, no, well, not in English-speaking ones anyway. I have no right. idea how that lyric translated into Japanese, but I'll never know, and that's probably for the best. I also love the, the line, uh, a guy in Chicago said, you sing like a girl. And then you, what do you do? You buy him a drink and say, you know, thanks. You do sing extremely well. If someone didn't already love your songwriting, they've got that, and then your guitar playing. I mean, and you do the, you do the finger-picking yourself, right? Yeah, I would say the majority of it. I certainly have had other guitar players on my album, so I don't want to take credit for all of it. But if, there's a, if you're referring specifically to Indiana, yes, that, that, I did do that. Jump the lines toward the sea down below and granite beaches back on the bus through the 
valleys and hills, to gods and temples the ancient Greeks built. Oranges, lemons, and wild daffodils in my Bill Domaine uh, figures into your work a little bit. Um, tell me where he figures in and also what he did, what, what you did together. Uh, Bill, I've known, you know, at least tangentially probably for about 20 years. He and I started writing songs together. Finally, I think maybe in uh, 2006 or so. Um, and a lot of those songs, you know, we decided we wanted to kind of write a torch song project and find, uh, ostensibly probably uh, a female singer to give this group of songs to. And, and so we we're, so we we're specifically writing them for, uh, this as yet unknown female singer. And that kind of shaped this body of work that we did. And, and I ended up stealing them back for myself and making them into an album called Almost and Always. And uh, which I think ah. came out in 2009. That was probably our thickest involvement. That, and then also we were the prime architects behind a children's band that we had for a couple of years called Davey Ukulele and the Gag Time Gang. All right, everybody, are you ready? Here we go! Here we go! Here we go! Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. So here's an invitation from us to you. We're Davey Ukulele and the Gag Town Gang. We're Davey Ukulele and the Gag Town Gang. We're Davey Ukulele and the Gag Town Gang. So Bill and I have this funny relationship where we wrote probably like the most serious kind of melancholic songs I've ever done. And then we've also written songs about everything from snot to poop and pee to, um, you know, all the, all this fun stuff for uh, Davey Ukulele. And, uh, you know, we've just remained friends ever since. You know, he's always one of the first people I bounce anything off of. He's like a very reliable set of ears and, um, and he's just a great guy. So um, that's, I guess, the, the short version of our involvement together. You guys made a concept album together that was never released. You want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, it was just, you know, he and I do really well writing in like for projects. And one of our, one of our ideas was, um, to start working up uh, an original musical and we based it around uh, an apartment building where I was living at the time. So I think we ended up writing 10 songs and we, we, you know, and, and we started with the music, uh, which may or may not be advisable when your, your end goal is to, to write a, uh, a musical, which is generally extremely narrative-driven, and, and, and that's right. definitely a genre in which the song has to serve the story. So we ended up, kind of, it stalled out a bit because we just couldn't quite connect these songs together gotcha. narratively. But that's about as far as it got. So you could always return to it at some point, maybe. Absolutely. Um, okay, so let's go back to the beginning. 1998, he signed with RCA Records. By the way, I'm getting my information from Wikipedia, which is never, ever wrong. So please let me know if I get anything wrong. Um, as far as I know, my Wikipedia is, is 100% accurate, so that's great. Awesome. Uh, Gus Dudgeon is uh, listed as someone that you worked with for three songs that were 
quote unquote, deemed unsuccessful and scrapped. So, of course, what I want to know, being a gigantic Elton John fan and having every album he ever recorded with Gus Dudgeon, um, what was the problem? And that doesn't mean, and I know that there's, there can be all kinds of reasons for things not working. It could be a bad fit, even though he's awesome and you're awesome. But what do you think went wrong? You know, with 20 years hindsight on that, I, I would say... I, I don't know that things went wrong necessarily as much because in a lot of respects, the, the fact that those sessions didn't, the, the product of those sessions didn't seem to be the right thing ended up contributing to what did eventually become the right thing. You know what I mean? It's like we, the, my that. first album was, it was a bit of a mess because I mean, it's called the luxury of time with a positive connotation, but it was like, you know, I just had so much material that was mm -hmm. so all over the place. And um, there were, there was, a, it was, it took a long time for us to kind of figure out like, well, what should this album be? You know, when you do a first album, you, you have to take in, I mean, you don't have to, but sometimes you have to kind of take into consideration, like, look, this is uh first impression is, is essentially what it is. Like, there's kind of a lot of pressure in a sense, like it, it's not, and even in 1999, it, it was, the scenario was not such where you had like two or three albums to kind of figure out what you were doing. Like, you know, then it was like, well, what's the best opening version of this guy to, to present with the idea that you can expand on a theme later. And, you know, <laughs> given that, given that that was the intention and, and how uh, eclectic and that that album ended up being anyway, I have to kind of give RCA records a lot of credit for letting me get away with that because it was not a very easily classified piece. Always selling music is is about consistency and it's about branding and it's about um and when i say selling music i'm referring to the modern method of it but uh it, it it's about leading from one thing to another uh there's a lot of music out there and there's only so many people who are really that excited about hearing something that's brand new yeah um, that that's the sad truth of it and um but it's the, you know, it's, it's the reality that everybody has to deal with. So, But if we love uh, the artists, we're going to follow them anywhere. I mean, look at Elvis Costello. And he's not an example of the average guy by any means. Everything he does is different. But um, we'll follow him and we'll, we'll let him take us somewhere new. And uh, that's what uh, some of us really want. That's a, that's a market. Yeah. And I'm one of those people too. But you'd be shocked at how, or maybe not, but, but that market is pretty small. Yeah, it's small. That's and most of those people... In those, and, and you know, I mean, it's that's fine that it's small. I have no problem with it being small. But um, if you're, if you find yourself on a major label, and the business of a major label is not being small, mm -hmm. you know, the business of a major label is 
selling a certain quantity of, of units that is is substantial, and you know that's kind of how they they spend their money and, and appropriate their budget. So um, I think if someone signs to a major label, as I did, you kind of have to be ready to play that ball game to the best of your ability. You know, they're not, they're not really, I'm saying they're not like, but I'm really, I'm speaking in, in a distant past tense because when I was on a major label, everything was radically different than it is now. I have no idea what major label world really is about. Now I haven't really been associated with it in a long time. I guess what we're both but, saying is that uh, record companies don't exist to provide something to the, to this minority that really exists and that is hungry for this thing. They don't right. want to, they only want to feed the thing that's easy to figure out. Yeah, and even that thing is baffling, bafflingly difficult to figure out. Right. <laughs> I yeah, mean, I would never do. want to work at a record company. I have no, I have no, I have so little idea of what. It was really funny. I just, I was, I was coming home from, uh, I went to Grimey's uh, record store in Nashville, which is the 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 worldwide exclusive uh, brick and mortar retailer for my new album Jen and i had just uh they'd, they'd sold through the first batch i'd brought in so i was dropping off more and i got back in the car and i just like turned on the radio right in time to hear about uh, a particular artist who was uh they were excited uh, they're coming to town in a couple of weeks to for a sold out show at a thousand seat venue here and um then they were they played the the single and i had this sensation which i have a lot um, when I hear new music these days, which and it, it's not like I hear it and I'm like, that's not good. I hear it and you know my opinion of it is, is irrelevant. But what I'm curious about is like I really have no concept for why this is uh, resonating with people. I don't get that, and I but don't. It's like I just on a, on a basic level, I don't really understand. Like what, what, why would that, I would like, I'd love to sit down with fan number one of that artist and say, what does this do for you? Cause I really would like to understand. Well, let, let me just finish up one more thing with the Gus Dungeon thing. So there's you, there's Gus Dungeon and there's what the label or the, who decided that it wasn't uh, going to be released. I think everybody, but Gus. Okay. <laughs> so Gus liked it. Nobody else. Was I, I actually saw Gus at South by Southwest. I don't know how I would, I think I was at South by Southwest the year that the record came out. And he just sort of popped up right as I was coming out of the bathroom of uh, Antone's, I think. And, uh, and very, you know, I, I, I was, I, it was a bit awkward because a lot of things that sort of happened around that session. I think it was really just an administrative logistical kind of issues, like people yelling at him because the record label hadn't paid him. And it, it wasn't anything that I had anything to do right. with, but there was just like, I, and I, everybody knew that he was kind of offended that the rec, that the track hadn't been used or whatever, which is fine. But, um, I said, I said, so have you heard the record? And he said, yeah. And I go, what do you think? He goes, not much. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah. I think anybody who, who knew Gus Dudgeon would say he was a, a man who was quite sure of his own opinion, which is great. Yeah. I miss people like that. You don't meet enough of them anymore. Well, hey, that had worked out. You might have, it might have been the last thing you ever recorded. I think some of the best advice I ever got about anything, period, was like, you know, all you can really do in life is not, you can't worry about ever making the right decision. You make the best decision you can at the time with the information that's available to you. And that's really the only way you can move forward, I think. Yep. 
you say something about your lyrics only being good in certain spots. And I, I mean, there are some spots that they just pop right out. Fell back to the real world, 920 on a Saturday. So it seems it's you and I in harm's familiar way. Walk out on the front porch, no nothing's gonna keep us in. We're making it up on the river in our sleepy autumn town Love, don't leave me now Winter's diamond light Oh, Borealis in the twinkling of your eyes Winter's diamond light It's so good I know I don't tell you as much as I should But sometimes I'm lost in what I'm going through But you know I do Anything for you Wonderful. When Dudes came out in 2011, you had done everything up to that point with record labels? Uh, let's see. The record before Dudes was Almost and Always, uh, which I, I did basically, I mean, I hadn't really done a record, you know, in the traditional sense of like the record label hand you money and there's an A&R guy that is checking in and kind of monitoring the process of the record. And I mean, I hadn't really done anything like that since my third album for RCA, which was 90 or 2000, 2001, um, I'd always just recorded an album on my own, or, or not, sorry, not on my own, but, you know, independently with a producer and musicians and everything. And uh, then somebody got behind it. Then li And then licensed it to, okay. to someone. And there were some variations of that. I started a label at one point with a investor for the record Tangerine, and um, I uh, licensed almost and always to a pre-existing label, or actually a few pre-existing labels. Um, and then, you know, dudes, uh, I might have licensed that somewhere in Japan. I think I did. That it's okay. It's just fine. Happy birthday, Marty Ryan. You got class, you got style, and you got soul. With all your friends, with your kind. Happy birthday, Marty Ryan. We'll get no. Um, but yeah, you know, like, like I said before, it's just the, the model of how to do this is just changing so radically. Well, in 2011, uh, there's a quote uh, in your Wikipedia page that says, uh, it's a sign of the times when a smart, compelling, and established songwriter like David Mead has to rely on fans to build an album. Being fan-financed has let Mead write the toughest and most confrontational songs of his career. Very nice uh, comments about um the dude's album and you raised twenty one thousand dollars on kickstarter and that was the way you put that album out and it's not wrong i mean uh, i daily 
struggle with what's right and what's wrong. And it doesn't seem to be like there's any rules like that anymore. You can do whatever you want as long as it works. Sure. There's a nice freedom to the way things work now in that I just think that there's a, there's a level of transparency that's allowed that mm-hmm. didn't used to be because, uh, well, on social media wasn't really what it I was either non-existent or not is, you know, didn't occupy the space in the cultural consciousness that it does now. Um, but two, there was a lot of work and money spent on, I don't know, maintaining a certain mythology, uh, a certain distance and displacement uh, that was supposed to assist in the elevation of one to star status. And now, you know, I, I think it's the stars are kind of made on, you know, reality shows. And yeah. um, now that now that people are famous literally for, for absolutely nothing except being famous, it's just sort of that whole thing has crumbled. And, and I enjoy that as a working musician and songwriter because uh, I've, I, I always found it pretty tiresome to try to um, maintain that, what, I guess what I just described, whatever you want to call it, maintain that mythology or keep creating that mythology. It was just kind of stupid and a waste of time to me to, um, you know, to work so hard in keeping up that sort of smoke and mirrors routine. Um, now that said, I, I'm not like the most approachable, personable, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily the best person to talk to after a gig. Like, I do my best, but I, but I, you know, I just kind of get tapped out after a while. So I, sure. I don't know if I'm like the most available person in that world, but I do like the fact that it is honestly, uh, you know, I can, as I do sometimes go film myself doing repairs at rental properties, um, you know, for replacing someone's drain basket on a sink or whatever. And that seems to somehow be about as popular as me sitting down with a guitar and actually playing a song. Like it's all sort of, it's, it's just a lot more organic to uh, like, you know, basically like, here's my life. This is what I do. You know, I make music. Uh, I am a father. I'm a husband. I'm a landlord. Um, I do all this shit and it all, to me, it all kind of works together and it all creates a balance that I really like. And that's, okay it's not like i'm gonna try to hide any of that you know it's just like hey this is what i do uh this is my life and music is a part of it and that's kind of the thing at this point it's not really so much about let me take you to this you know to the to this special garret on a mountain where i create my masterwork here inside you know like there's nothing of that i've got a fucking room on top of my in-laws uh garage and i go up and i make music and it's good and i put it out and i do a lot of other stuff all day long like i would imagine pretty much everybody else does but uh there's there's not a lot of glamour to it and i wouldn't really want there to be um but i really enjoy it and i'm having a great time it's almost anti-glamour you i saw that video you talked about that face uh, social media post you made going from property to property. And you said something to the effect of there's no wrong way to promote an album, Cobra pumps. And then you start showing, um, going into this property here, we're going to fix the drain. I have no idea what to expect. We'll, we'll let you know how it works out. And then you came back out, you made a comment about it. And then you said, Cobra pumps. <laughs> I'm just right um, now. In contrast to that, to say 20 years ago, was it 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, I can remember being in the back of a town car riding around a multiple promotional 
things in New York um, and, you know, being treated a certain way every time you walk in a building and just like having to indulge in all this shit that was just so kind of fake and awkward, but it's like you just did it because that's what you're supposed to do. And, you know, the way that I would feel by the end of that day, which is basically like somebody get me four drinks right now, as opposed to the way that I feel when I fix those girls' sink and walk out of there and think, like, hey, I just fixed the sink. This is awesome. I mean, there's <laughs> it's like <laughs> the, the difference is there's no comparison. Like, I would so much rather be spending my time doing that. How do we ever end up here? Stuck in my old hometown Shuffling cards at the breakfast table Watching the world go round Baby, you look like a princess Wrapped in my old bathrobe Stuck on a page of a paperback Still waiting to unfold and it's true, I've been waiting on an angel in disguise. So could you save me from an ordinary life? Well, you can't be kid in a candy store, smacking your lips cause you still You said um, I deduced that I simply don't fit into the industry anymore if I ever did. It now requires very different skill sets than the ones I've spent my life trying to master, and that's okay with me. And then what you did is you emailed links to everybody on your mailing list to give them the tracks for free, including demos and other content over the next 10 days, and then you released it properly as well with iTunes, correct? All true. And, it's, and, and you can get physical copies on my website. And you've got vinyl. So somebody came after that and helped you do that, or did you use the money you'd raised to get that done yourself? I had the vinyl ready to go before any of that started, although uh, there was a great story with that. As, as, as you probably know, vinyl is kind of a, a steep uh, entry in terms of the price point. It's, not, it's mm-hmm. not cheap to get any number of vinyl units done up, and, and I was pretty much tapped out. I got a funny call from uh, my friend Adam Schlesinger, who's uh, in the band Fountains of Wayne and also has produced one of my albums. And uh, Anyway, this is back in... Um, God, I think it was like September of 18. And uh, he hired me to come up and sing background vocals on the Monkees Christmas album. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> just, Wonderful. Just, so it was so bizarre and, and uh, just weird. And, and, and it was a blast. And I had a great time hanging out with him and working with him. And, and I really liked the music. And uh, uh, so, you know, whatever. I went up and did that. Had a really good couple of days up in new york with adam came home and then uh it uh it took a little while to get paid but once that was worked out the check from the monkeys gig showed up and it was literally 48 cents less than what i needed to pay for the first run of vinyl so in a lot of ways i think i think i should say thanks to the monkeys and rhino records that 
the Cobra pumps exist on vinyl. Now it's moving and selling. So, um, you know, printing up more of it's not an issue, but at the time it kind of was. And, um, you know, Adam Schlesinger and the universe intervened in, within, in perfect timing. So it was fantastic. thing i love about uh, your your plan here is that you're never out of print i noticed that you work with ron sexsmith and his albums he's got albums that aren't available to buy anymore and that's because the record company sold them and they own the rights and they went out of print and they chose to hang on to them or not you know release them anymore with the things that you control that can't happen is that true that is true yeah that is that that is absolutely true I'm, i can print up as many as I want whenever I want. Um, unfortunately, I, I, I'm also, I'm in the same boat with Ron on, I guess, like three of my albums because uh, they were, uh, the masters are owned by the record companies that put them out and, mm-hmm. you know, in the, it, because they can just keep them up in perpetuity on uh, iTunes and Spotify. They don't really have any, there's no, there's no motivation for them to uh, keep printing them. Uh, let's just get some random things here, um, about how you proceed in the studio as a songwriter. Uh, I know that you have written on some of the descriptions of your albums uh, on iTunes that you've had probably double the number of songs you need when you go in a lot of times, but you've also written songs at the last minute, um, that were needed, um, for maybe something that sounded more like a single or whatever reason with, um, most of your albums, do you have a certain percentage of songs to a certain completion before you start recording, or do you? Is it always different? It's always a little bit different, um, but usually, I would say if there's a rough template that it seems like about eighty percent of what's going to end up on the record is written um, beforehand, and then there's something about kind of starting to assemble all that material that will usually inspire like more. Um, And, uh, you know, on Cobra Pumps, it was, uh, I sort of, I wrote songs a little bit differently than I normally had. So I I would kind of get going on the recording process way earlier than I traditionally did. Uh, Usually record way too much on something and then start pulling it back and editing it. and I did a lot of rewriting. I did probably more rewriting than I can ever recall. And probably some of that was because, like, I, I need, you know, this entire Cobra Pumps is, it, it, to me, it's, it's a lot more uh, rhythmically um, 
Oh God, I don't know. It, it, it's it's a lot more of a hips album than than I've done previously, and so I really needed there to be a rhythmic element early in the songwriting process. But at the same time, that meant that I had to kind of go back and really cross my T's and dot my I's lyrically and melodically, um, and make sure that this thing, this track that felt really good, was. Um, you know, not just a track that felt really good, but was actually a, a song. And uh, so this one was was probably the most different, but the other ones I would say more or less, the, to the best of my recollection, kind of adhere to that idea, but 80% there. I'm a lyrics first kind of writer. I, I would get the impression that you write lyrics first sometimes, at least, because your lyrics are so good. Is that accurate? It is not, actually. I, I pretty much, occasionally I, I'd start with a title, Mm-hmm. Um, but I pretty much never write lyrics until the music is, has a pretty strong thing to it. And and the reason for that is that I, I, um, it's not, it's really not anything intentional. It's never, it's not anything I, I ever meant to do. It just kind of started happening. And mm-hmm. I think most of the emotional drive of the song for me does come from the music. And, um, Sometimes I, you know, I guess, especially the older I get, I, I just really want to sit with a piece of music and, and listen to it. And uh, that, that seems to, that, that part of the song seems to pop out of my subconscious or whatever it is uh, very easily. And, and the, the, I, I feel like the lyrics have to be sort of, have, have to serve the function of the music. Um, I don't, generally gravitate to, to music that's that's uh has great lyrics and just uh doesn't do it for me melodically and harmonically like that um that's just not something i really aspire to do so uh, you know even uh, lyrics i enjoy lyrics that that don't really I don't know. I just feel like when I listen to music, I'm probably, I might be uh, the opposite of you. Like uh, lyrics are usually the last thing that matter to me in you know, a lot of respects. I, now the way that words sound and the way that words will shape around the melody, that's incredibly important. That's one of the first things I noticed. You have a knack, especially knowing that, what you just told me, for putting the right words to the music that exists so that they so that they sound natural. They sound like they weren't um, forced in with a crowbar. And then you come up with lines like, I got a heart like a propane oven in Bedtime Story. It comes out of nowhere. Um, so I think when I find most power pop people write their songs and they have a beautiful sounding, they're really good with making guitars sound good and getting a good drum sound and having a good blend in the studio. And it's all beautiful. And they have good ideas for songs. And then the lyrics are pasted on. And you just can tell. You don't have that at all. Not in the slightest bit. Mixing up our streets and avenues And now you're fast asleep and I am so alone And we're together on the last train All the towns repeating Four more stops to go Well, th- thanks a lot for that compliment, first of all. And um, 
I, uh, it, I mean, it is important to me that they, that they measure up, but it's, it's sort of like the way in which they measure up. It might be a little different. I, I don't, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I think I kind of, in, in terms of narratives and, um, I've always preferred things that were a little bit more stream of consciousness. I feel like that. And there's also like, there's a certain amount of ambiguity that I think is really important to leave in a song. Mm-hmm. Um, not with the intention of being vague, but with the intention of, it's almost like those choose your own adventure uh, yep. books that, you know, maybe you read as a kid. I did. Uh, but you know, there's, there's, you know, that no matter what happens, the listener is going to if they if if a song resonates with them they're going to create their own experience with it and that's exactly what i want to happen when people are listening to my music so in some respects i don't want to be too definite you know what i mean i want to leave some space for them to to uh think about it and uh if if that is if i'm successful in doing that then i feel like it's 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 a good song i've written um I've definitely written songs that, that don't do that so much and they don't age as well for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't go back to them and, and feel like I'm getting more out of them. I feel like they're sort of done. And I'm just kind of, when I go back to them, I feel like I'm having the exact same experience over and over again. But the ones that, that really, uh, you know, that I still enjoy playing, say off my first album are usually the ones that have a little bit more, space in them for interpretation and i'm reinterpreting them myself so uh i i generally enjoy going back to those more wonderful when you go in the studio and you're going to start a new album do you have a plan or do you have a preference about being comfortable or uncomfortable you start with a certain kind of song i like to start with a song that i know exactly where it's going and how to get the sound if i have to work as a producer and say Oh, I don't know how I'm going to get that sound and do that song first. And my confidence goes down, you know, but that might be just exactly what drives another person. Um, and I never start with a slow song, you know, but you try to find something that's going to really feel good and, and maybe say, yeah, I got an album coming here. This is good. What do you do? That's a really good question. Um, I, I would agree with you. I, I do like to start with something that I feel somewhat confident about. Um, and that's partially for me. And it's also partially, you know, if there are other people involved, uh, I know it's important for team morale, for lack of a better word, totally. you know, like, like don't, don't, don't expect people to, you know, just in a brand new situation, um, coalesce around something that you yourself are feeling a little iffy about, uh, don't expect them to save you from it. Now, and not that there that that does happen sometimes, but I would prefer that that happen a little bit further into the process. So, so yeah, I usually pick something that's uh, I f- have a pretty decent idea of the standard that I want everybody to get up to. Um, now I'm talking about when I'm in the studio with other people and I'm paying uh, to be there, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if I'm just in my room, uh, you know, by myself, I'll I'll go a bunch of different directions i mean i think that's the the point of having that sandbox is to just uh try something and you know fail incredibly if you need to fail incredibly um but i guess when it kind of gets down to uh time to time you know time to tighten up and really pay attention and be in that mode then yeah i'm with you when we talk about recording in a songwriting podcast we're talking about how what we hear in our head 
ends up being heard. So the recording is part of that process. But when you want to lay it down, do you do a guide track? Do you do vocal? Do you keep the things that you lay down right away? Or do they end up being scratched? Cobra Pumps, I did full band demos, uh, synthetic, uh, and fake drums, uh, other fake instruments. But I, I did every song that way, soup to nuts, by myself uh, in my room because I, I needed to hear I needed to hear the full band on that because I was just trying to um, revoice a lot of things and, and recast a lot of parts on that that w- it was different than what I had done before and um, also I knew the guys that were coming in that, that were going to be tried that were going to be doing the rhythm the, I knew the rhythm section and I knew that they wouldn't have any problem doing really natural performances to those things. And I also wanted to free myself up to be able to uh, listen objectively to their performances and not be in the room with them performing, even though I I would have enjoyed that, but I was producing. So I needed to be able to kind of step back and listen. So um, that's how I did Cobra Pumps was uh, I brought in my demos. Those guys played to the, the fully, I mean, pretty fully realized tracks. And then I went back and erased everything or most of, most of everything. I don't know. I'd say, I'd say I probably dumped about 75% of what I had recorded before. And so you kept uh, the tempo a bunch and you of, kept the starting point and then those instruments existed in, the, in tracks on the same uh, take, basically the same. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then I wanted to go back and start fresh for the most part. Um, and play to those guys because they, you know, playing to those guys and playing to a drum machine is a completely different world. I just kept the stuff that was, you know, that I recorded on demos that was just like weird sounds that kind of came out of nowhere that were awesome and would be impossible to duplicate again. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, the meat and body of, of pretty much everything was redone um, because again, I wanted, I wanted to play with the, I wanted to play with the humans. <laughs> Absolutely. I didn't want to. I didn't want to play with the machine. In the days that you had a producer, what roles did they play in the arrangements and, in fact, in the songs? Did a lot of them try to write, try to write with you, successfully or unsuccessfully? And how did that work out for you? Uh, almost none of them tried to write with me. I, I found out after the fact that, that Adams Adams Lechinger had gotten a directive from. The, from RCA to try to write some hits with me, which oh. he sort of sheepishly made an attempt at, and then and then kind of was like, yeah, let's don't bother with this, you know. Like I, I feel like it, he he didn't feel comfortable doing that, but he he tried it. I didn't really know what was going on, but oh. um, he's the only one who's really actively tried to write with me. Um, and uh, you know, different producers are just different. My, you know, Jason Lenning was a great engineer um, and he really approached the songs from a, a sonic kind of textual standpoint. Peter Collins is sort of more of an old school producer who has golden ears and I think has a really good intrinsic understanding of, of musicians to cast uh, for a particular thing. And he, you know, if a musician, his thing is, is like a musician ever walks in and says, so what do you want me to do? He just fires them <laughs> because because he's like, I hired you to come in and know what to do and to just do it, which is kind of hard line. But I, I also mm-hmm. think that's a pretty interesting approach, especially if you're spending someone else's money. Um, 
And uh, let's see, Adam. Uh, Adam was a little bit more half half in, half out. Uh, Brad Jones is an incredible musician. Uh, he played a lot on my records and uh, was very, very involved, extremely involved in the arrangements. Uh, he taught me so much about what what matters in arranging. That was both of the records I did with him were great experiences for that. Um, and uh, am I leaving anybody out? Of, uh, I probably am. Oh, uh, Dudes was produced by uh, my buddy Ethan Eubanks. I think in a lot of ways, is also in, in around, even though he's a great musician himself and he played drums on the record, I think he also is kind of a, a really good ears guy um, who was more about, we need, you know, we need this for this and we need this guy for this and let's figure out a way to make it happen. Plus, he, he you know, I think a, 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 an amazing skill that a producer generally needs to possess in this day and age is how to make a budget work and how to get, how to call in favors from people um, and, you know, somehow pull it off because hardly anybody has just a, a, a buckets of money sitting around anymore to do this. It's always about, okay, how do we, you know, kind of balance this out, make it happen. Um, Ethan is the best at that part. And I couldn't believe he got as much out of the budget for dudes as he did, but he did. And I don't know if I've, I, that's kind of an awkward thing to credit someone for. And I don't feel like I've ever properly done it before, <laughs> but that was, I mean, really for the amount of money we had to spend on that record, it probably should have been me and a, and a, and a guy or a couple guys, um, in a room being well recorded and he sort of made it into a, a pretty impressive production. He somehow, he somehow fit multiple horn players and, and a string section and, you know, all this stuff into it, which, you know, by all means we shouldn't have been able to afford, but that's a really important, you know, gift that some guys have and he's great at it. Well, your answer was way better than my question. So thank you for that. <laughs> the question could have gone anywhere and you, you, you managed to give credit to all these people for what they did best. And I love that. Adam Schlesinger of Fountains of Wayne says you're probably the best singer in America. And uh, Pace Magazine said you're one of the best solo crooners since Jeff Buckley. Not a bad thing to hear. So being a person that's uh, getting up in age that sings, I often think about what do singers like yourself with beautiful instrument do for voice care over time? Because it's really easy to playing live or being in bad circumstances where things are too loud. Uh, to hurt yourself. Um, do you have a lot of maintenance that you do? Do you still see um, a coach? What do you have to contribute on that subject? I try to get sleep. Uh, it's is, is the most important thing. And, uh, you know, I have a two-year-old and a six-year-old, so that's not uh, particularly easy. But if I had to make one recommendation, I would just say just be rested. Uh, sorry, if I had, to, I can, I can make two recommendations. Well, number one is just to sing properly. And I, I think a lot of people um, approach singing as a different activity than speaking. 
um, which it is on some level, and it's just my opinion. I, I'm sure there's plenty of people who know a lot more than me that would say that I'm wrong, but um, I got this from a vocal coach I had when I was, God, 18, 19 years old, and it's, I've never forgotten it. It's like, you know, when, when you're speaking, you are singing, if you think about it. I mean, mm-hmm. I just probably covered six notes in that answer. Um, you're just kind of falling over notes in a, in a different, uh, arguably more staccato style, but you should be able to, you know, just be speaking and then just slide right into your singing voice, you know, like that. It's not, it really shouldn't be like, okay, now I'm singing because as soon as your brain switches into that mode, you are inevitably taxing your voice more than you are when you're speaking. So, um, I I would challenge and advise singers to, to you know sort of examine their voice. Like, are you singing? Because inevitably, if you if you can do that, if you can sing more or less from the spot that you speak, then you won't overtax your voice. Because I mean, you can certainly go hoarse or, or you know whatever by speaking, but you're more likely to just sound more like yourself anyway. And don't go off of that. Don't have a version of of your voice that you do to sing this kind of music or some other kind of music. Like just look, nobody wants to hear your acting version of 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 you, you know, trying to co-opt something that you're not. Just sing like you sing and sing in a lot of ways like you speak. Um that's that's what I think is the best remedy to maintaining your voice. And and you know what? And also accept the voice that accept the reality that as you age, uh, your voice is going to change. Mine has, um, but don't think of that as a negative. You know, just accept like this. Like, look, you can if you if, <laughs> if as a forty five year old man, I look in the mirror and I'm bummed out that I don't my face doesn't look the way it looked when I was twenty. Um, I'm just gonna walk out of the house feeling like an asshole every day. But in fact, I'm trying to just get better at being like, Hey, this is how my face looks. This is what it does. <laughs> I mean, and, yep. that's, and, and that's like, this is, this is the result of the life that I live. And I like the life that I live. And I think your voice is a similar extension of yourself. Um, and just because, and dude, you know, I mean, I can, I, I honestly, I do not enjoy singing about half the songs off of my first, that's definitely my first record. I know the first record, I, you know, I would always intentionally, I had this young, insecure kind of tendency to write to the top of my range. Yes. And that, the top of my range at age 23 is is just not, I mean, it's like I can get there now, but it just sounds so dumb <laughs> Different, <laughs> to yeah. me. It's like, I don't want to hear my voice sing those notes anymore. So I have alternate ways of approaching it that are a little bit more acceptable, but um, but again, I think you just you just have to get into your voice, and you have to trust that your voice, uh, other people's perception of your voice. If you're if you're singing honestly and you're singing like yourself, it's the best thing you can do. And if that doesn't sound great to you at the moment, then live with it for a little while. Um, I guarantee that that if your voice embodies you and your spirit and your soul. Uh, if it's honest, people will respond to that way more than you trying to sing like someone you aren't. That's it. Well, it seems like it's a, a nice ending to the interview because uh, overall, 
your confidence in what you're doing, even if it's not there on the inside and the outside, you're, you're basically trying all this stuff and you're, and you're experimenting in terms of recording and releasing and uh, getting things out to the world and social media and uh, just adjusting all the time. And, and then you do it in a way that gives me hope. I really love that. Oh, thanks, Dave. I appreciate that. It gives me hope that, that there's anyone out there that actually still wants to have a conversation for an hour about, about things that are important to both of us. <laughs> yeah, that's so I've enjoyed this. Thanks. I want to thank you for being a part of the podcast and, um, and really enjoyed your conversation. Likewise, Dave. Thanks a lot. Take care of yourself. Take care. You've been listening to Songwriter Stories, Episode 6 with David Mead. There's more to this podcast than just the interview. For bonus content, visit songwriterstories.com and click on the Writer's Room link for this episode. If you like the podcast, consider giving us a review at Apple Podcasts. That's all for now. I'm Dave Caruso, and I'll see you next time.